0: Welcome to Writers' Festival Radio. My name is Sean Wilson. I'm the Artistic Director of the Ottawa International Writers' Festival, and I'm your host. We are broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabe, and it gives me great pleasure to welcome you to the podcast. Today's episode spotlights the art of the short story, and we are blessed to be hearing from three of this country's absolute finest. We'll begin with Suvankam Thamavangsa. An astounding poet whose debut collection, How to Pronounce Knife, has been long-listed for the 2020 Scotiabank Giller Prize, was named one of the best books of spring by the New York Times, Salon, The Millions, and Vogue. She spoke with author, poet, and editor Rhonda Douglas. Here's a short taste of the prose, followed by their conversation.
1: worms. The easiest way to get your numbers to be good was to find a mound of worms, all roped together and mating. When you got one of those, speed was everything, as the worms below that pile start to crawl back into the earth, but my mother got those too. She pulled at them slowly and steadily giving the worms enough time to let go of what ground they were crawling back to and come out whole into her hand. She filled her styrofoam cups easily with all their bodies intact. I didn't like how the worms felt in my hands, so cold and slimy and raw. There was no mistaking they were alive. They never stopped slinking and slithering around, stretching their bodies out into such a length that I wasn't even sure these were worms I had just picked. I could feel their bodies pulse and throb and tickle in my hands, and they would jab at me with a head or tail, and I couldn't tell which. Both ends looked the same to me. I wanted to scream, to yell out about how gross it all was, and to throw them back to the ground. But I didn't want to shame my mother in front of everyone, so I held on. This was a job wanted by many, and I was lucky my mom got me in.
2: Welcome, Subankham, and thanks for taking the time to talk to me today.
1: Congratulations
2: on the nomination for the Scotiabank Giller Prize. So exciting. Um, And the book has been incredibly well received. How are you feeling about how the book's been received so far?
1: I've never seen, I mean, I've never experienced anything like this, you know. Um, I used to print and bind my own books and Sell them out of my school knapsack or at small press fairs. So I know everybody that I've ever sold a book to. Um, So it's strange to know that uh, there are lots of people I don't know or will ever meet who are reading this book.
2: Oh, so amazing, right? And all over the world, which is so great. So great.
1: Places I've never been at all, but I want to be someday.
2: I know you and a lot of people know you as a poet. Your collection Cluster is the last collection out in 2019, absolutely gorgeous, also nominated for prizes. So, um I'd like to talk about how long you've been working on this particular short story collection.
1: I've had the themes and the characters in mind for a while, like 12 years, but Um, And I've just slowly been working on these stories alongside the poetry.
2: Right. How does that work for you? Like, how do you find going back and forth? And do you see any similarities or differences between poetry and short fiction as you're working on them?
1: I kind of think of it like, you know, how in a sports arena, um, sometimes the space is... For basketball, and then it gets taken apart and it turns into a hockey rink to play hockey. Um, I I just think of poetry and short fiction um, in that same way. They occupy a se- the same space, but the rules of the sport are, and are different, and the people who play them uh, um, move. In different ways and by different rules, um, but at the end of the day, um, it's it. The main thing is the joy and the pleasure, of and the skill of the game that's most important. Um, so, for poetry and short fiction, I just thought, well, both of these things, what matters is the, the sentence. So I just focused on what I wanted a sentence to do and behave within each of those containers.
2: Mm, I love that. I love that metaphor too, yeah. Um, so I was doing some some research and looking at other places that um, you know have reviewed the book and commentary on the book. And I thought, and this was after I'd read the book, and I thought some of them struck me as... Um, uh, I mean, they were all really interesting, but some of them focused on, they all focus on different things, right? So there was a review in the Washington Post that said something along the lines of, you know, the collection is one that aims to educate the white reader about the immigrant experience. And I thought, huh, uh, really? Are, like, were you thinking about <laughs> when you were writing the the, the stories? Uh,
1: no, because what, two things um, that I disagree with that line is one it's intellectually narrow to to make those kinds of aims and two um it's absolutely impossible for me to even imagine I mean not to imagine but like it's it's not it like I I can't like my experience is my experience. I can't, there is no way that I would contain the white gaze. So, and I also think um, <laughs> a reviewer should stick to the work, not imagine what my aim is. You can't possibly know what, I mean, you can kind of, I, my book is a map, of course, but you can't say outright something like that without backing it up.
2: I'd love to talk about the parent-child relationships in the book. Um, I, um, you know, those moments between, um, you know, dad and daughter, mom and daughter, maybe the mom and daughter ones were occasionally a little more fraught, moments between siblings, um, so tender, so acutely observed, so beautiful. And I'm wondering um, if you can say a little bit about you know, how you were thinking about those relationships as you wrote the stories and what was important in them for you to, to capture?
1: I didn't want to pity my characters. What I am in each of those stories is I'm brutal. Um, I, I'm brutal about everybody that you encounter in each of those stories. Um, and um i offer different ways uh for people to show um intimacy and closeness between mothers and daughters and um in ways that we often don't see in literature like for example the mother in um you are so embarrassing um she says to um, her daughter you don't know what no she says to her daughter no one wants to be a mother and you can't know that until you are one and um, you know oftentimes when we encounter stories about mothers there are women who want to be mothers uh, or they're often viewed romantically um, and, uh, about being a mother. Um, and I just wanted a character that, um, says that has regret and says it out loud and admits it and to the person that you don't say that to. Well,
2: actually, I think I had a, uh, like a gasp when I read that line. It, was I mean as you say brutal like there's a kind of gorgeous brutality Um, so were you being it sounds like you were being consciously brutal like really trying to shave back to um, to the kind of the essence of people's true reactions
1: Um, I wanted um, just to encounter characters that we don't often see behave this way, um, even you know a seventy year old woman who is at the center of a love story, um, and it's and it you know she's the she's she's the hero, and um, that love story, even though she doesn't get that person, the act of walking away is is the get the the important thing that um that is that is the story
2: i was really curious about your approach as a writer um to because the collection you know deals with at times some really difficult moments in human life so it's sort of you know the loss of a friendship or um uh, you know, relationship, love and loss, unrequited love, um, the, the long lasting after effects of war, the moments of tenderness and, and grace are there, but they're not, um, it's not at all heavy handed. So I'd love to hear like how you think about that.
1: Anytime I've encountered stories that had um, immigrants or refugees in them, they tend to be sad um deep or, or tragic and you know rightly so because those are feel you know that those are true things um but i wanted to broaden that a little bit um like it's possible to be um to feel to feel shame but also Um, ferocious and brave at the same time. Um, It's never just one feeling that a character has. Um, You can feel, uh, like for example, um, in the opening story, How to Pronounce Knife, um, not a single time in the story do I ever use the word sad, humiliated, embarrassed when the child doesn't know how to pronounce the word because to me the child is none of those things what she is is she's alone with the language and uh it's just interesting to see that interpretation from a reader or a reviewer in that they don't ask why why Why? Why don't you use the words "sad," "humiliated," or "ashamed"? Um, And yet, they are willing to use those words when they describe. I mean, when they're describing a scene in that story. So that's um, very interesting. Um, Or even um, in the story Paris, where um, there is the main character longs for this intimacy, this closeness to another human being. But at the same time, she is incredibly proud and comfortable um, with self-love. I rarely get to see, you know, In we often just value um, love stories where love takes place with another person. But sometimes i mean not sometimes but like um i think it's valuable too to 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 live in your your loneliness and to value it like that scene where she describes how um she, the only love she knows is the kind of love that she feels when she goes to the supermarket and she just Hears talk in the aisle, or when she's at home and in the living room, she hears um, the television, the noise of the television. Or at night, when all the lights are off, it's just this darkness, and it's sprawling everywhere, and it's all hers, and it belongs to her. Um, I just really like that. Just like that was a description of self love that I I was interested in. Giving to a reader um, that it's possible to be at the center of a story, to be interesting, and to not rely on another character or another ball of energy to give you a life force.
2: Thank you for that. I wanted to ask about the refugee experience. To what extent are these stories sort of an act of translation or correcting mistranslations?
1: I mean, I didn't set out to say, okay, I will write about Lao refugees. It's just that is... My background. That's how I grew up. Um, I grew. Uh, the, those are my parents. Um, that's the neighborhood I lived in. Um, I lived in. I grew up in Toronto at the um, near, near the Keel and Eglinton area, and it's not a big deal to be a refugee from uh, in in that area. Like if you looked at our yearbook. Um, the last name, Wen, runs for like 20 pages. Um, so when you grow up in a neighborhood like that, you, are, you don't feel like you have to explain where you come from because everybody gets it. Um, and you center yourself at the center of any story you tell. And so for me, this is just like, I mean, this is this feels natural to me to t- tell a story and to have um, Lao people populate it. Um, I mean, there are some things that I didn't think about that you know just came, just really came naturally. Like someone had pointed out the attention to sound in the stories, um, like a lot of Lao people. I mean, in the language, um, the words for particular things um, sound like the thing that they make. Like, for example, um, a cat is called um, a male, which sounds kind of like meow. Um, or in that story, uh, in the collection, there's one titled, it's the sound of rusty hinges, and it's just titled Er. Which sounds like a door opening on rusty hinges. I mean, I hadn't noticed that until uh, an interviewer had pointed it out earlier this year and i and I thought to myself, yeah, it's all it's all there, but it's not something I consciously think about. Um, I'm also and you know, I'm not saying that I'm like. Alice Monroe. But um, you know, like when we talk about Alice Monroe's stories, we could say or I've seen it being said that it's just about, you know, housewives in small towns. Uh she's yeah. up to a bit more than that. Yeah. A little bit. yeah. <laughs> so like so um, so like, I mean, um, it's great, but people are, are picking up the book and um That they're talking about it, so I'm you know, that is the goal. Um, but also, I feel a little, um, like I I just feel like I'm you know, up to more than um, just, I mean, not just because you know, the fact that we don't see characters like this, um, often in literature that's important, but also. I mean, that's also just a, on the surface of things. Um, I feel like I'm up to more than than just writing about immigrants and refugees.
2: Thank you for saying that. Um, I mean, it's, it's really interesting because it is, you know, it is the world in which the characters move, but it is not what the stories are about. So I was reading an interview that you did with... Um, uh, with the Atlantic magazine and your, your comment was the cornerstone of these stories is laughter. (laughs) Can you say more about that and the role of laughter in, um, in the lives of these characters?
1: Well, I had seen an interview, uh, a few times, um, when two refugees talked to each other about the refugee experience is so sad and everybody in the audience is often like crying, um, which, you know, is, is true to the experience. But in my own experience, um, what I've seen my parents tell their own story to their friends, but it was never sad. Um, It was wild and um hilarious like uh and um i just i wanted to bring that spirit into the the story collections i wanted to often uh like i wanted to turn the tables so um when um i worked on looking at um, the idea of laughter when we laugh, when something isn't funny, we laugh when something is funny, we laugh when there's nothing else to feel. Um, it, and so we just let out this, um, l- um, laugh to fill the air. We laugh when we're absolutely exhausted and tired. We laugh when we think something is ridiculous, um, we laugh when we're scared, but all of those laughters sound and feel different. Um, but they're, the way in which we make that sound um, it, and the choice of when to make those the, the, to, or to feel the sound of laughter, they're all very different. It's not just one sound. Um, Like for example, in the story, A Far Distant Thing, um, these two little girls um, are being bothered by a neighbor who keeps calling them sexy. And one of them says, um, I'll cut it off. We'll see what's sexy then. And then they go into the hallway and start laughing together. And because of the echo, it sounds like they're more than two girls. And so then it feels like this whole gang and very powerful. Um, So laughter in that case is um, in numbers and is powerful. I mean, when we think about even like a comedy show that is power where um, you are making everybody in the audience see what you see and they're laughing and they're joining in and participating um and that's a quality or a thing that I wanted a reader to to have
2: Mm, mm. yeah it's interesting because it's there it's just every single story sort of has some some echo of that Um, I'd love to hear your experience as someone, as a poet, as someone who is, you know, therefore, you know, really, uh, maybe a t- especially attuned to sound. Um, what your experience was with the audiobook?
1: Oh, uh, well, I mean, it was really, it was such a wonderful experience. Little Brown sent me audition tapes. Um, of actors who they found Laotian and Thai actors out in Los Angeles. And so they taped the audio book there. We decided on two voices, a man and a woman. And um, I knew that when uh, people would read this book, that they would have trouble detaching my real life from the writing um, that i don't because I look like the characters in my book and I sound like the characters in my book, uh, readers would associate that as being true or somewhat taken from real life, and I wanted to to detach that for a reader, so I cast a man as the narrator of most of the stories because a lot of the stories are told in third person. Um, so I felt that once someone heard the man's voice, they wouldn't attach me to it. Like I could create a, a, a space that, that, that would, that would make a reader detach my life from my stories. Um, And we also cast um, a woman, but she had some of the most difficult stories to read because uh, she had to read. I mean, it was lovely to see her do slingshot because I wanted the voice of that narrator to be a kind of like a Lauren Bacall, um, you know, deep and knowing. And I mean, in a lot of the um, auditions, the, the actors are kind of giggling at the um, sex scenes of um, slingshot or or I can hear, I can hear them smile uh, when they're reading the text. Um, But I wanted, but I didn't want, I mean, that's a really difficult story to read because it could come it could go wrong really quickly. Um, You have to be serious and sound knowing and, Aged, but also um, incredibly confident um, and, and bored too. And she was, and she, like, when she got to the line, um, he was a man and I was bored. Like, I really wanted her to deliver that in a way that, you know, uh, was terrific. Um, and uh, the actor, uh, the male actor for the audiobook, um what was lovely about his reading was that um his voice cracked at some moments of the reading and so there was like a rawness that that um the readers got to hear cuz he f- cuz he felt so attached to the stories um J- so the his name is James Tang and he his father had owned a, I think it was a golf, golf supply store. And so when he read, um, the universe would be so cruel. Um, he was able to really channel Mr. Wong. Like he totally understood the voice of the father and the comedy of it too. Um, what, I mean, he, he, James really got the, I mean, I chose him because of the way he delivered this particular line from the short story, chicka where he says, um, dad worked in a factory. He said it as matter of fact, a lot of the actors, and I understand a lot of the actors said it with shame, like dad, like, like, dad worked at a factory, you know, like I, I could hear and feel the shoulders of the actors slump. And to me, that wasn't the tone of the story. Dad worked in a factory. That was a fact. It wasn't something to be ashamed of. And so I felt like James understood that. And, um, you know, Kulap, she, you know, she, Kulap Sock. she is also, she has a bit of a, um, you know, celebrity attached to her. She's been on several uh, episodes of Parks and Recreation, and she's um, a showrunner out in LA. Um, she's she. It was just really terrific to see um, two actors bring to life um, my text, and it also it made me realize. What I was doing as a writer because I could get the distance from the text. I felt, I mean, you know, we try to teach ourselves to read our own stories with um, some distance, you know, read it like the way a reader would read it. But when I heard the audiobook, I just also really, f- I mean, I felt like I truly was a reader of the work and I could really enjoy it from that perspective. Um, but also the audiobook added an extra depth to the book that um, you don't get if you just read the book by yourself.
2: Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Now I definitely have to listen to the (laughs)
1: audiobook as well.
2: Who are some of your favorite short story writers right now?
1: Well, a lot of the short story writers I like are people who have been around for a while. I, you know, my number one person is Alice Monroe. Um, I love the works of Eudora Welty, um, Carson McCullers, Flannery O'Connor, Tennessee Williams, William Faulkner, Rivka Gauchin. I just, I mean, there are so, so many. Oh Edward P Jones I had discovered him after I finished the collection somebody had said that my stories reminded them of his stories and I went to read them and I thought that was such high praise to to be um to be thought of in the same breath as, as Edward P Jones cuz he's so terrific he also we're very similar in that you know he worked for tax notes he was an editor and writer there whereas I work as a tax preparer so um just our sense of numbers and I guess also that distance that a number can provide (laughs) well thank you so much thank you so much for having me here it's been a pleasure
0: That was Rhonda Douglas in conversation with Suvankam Thamavangsa. Suvankam recently hosted an amazing conversation with Ocean Vuong for the Toronto Public Library. It's available free online, and I would highly recommend that anyone who has not yet had a chance to watch it, head over to the TPL website as soon as you've done this podcast. It's one of the absolute best virtual conversations I've ever experienced. Up next... It's Frances Boyle. Frances is an acclaimed poet and editor. She's an active participant in the local writing scene, having served as a board member and associate poetry editor for Arc Poetry Magazine. Her latest publication is the wonderful collection Seeking Shade. She spoke with our good friend, Peter Robb, a writer and editor with artsfile.ca and the former deputy editor of the Ottawa Citizen. Here's a taste of the prose followed by their conversation.
3: I rocked on my heels in the dry dirt. My legs had gone all tingly as me and Mum and Pammy crouched there in somebody's garden on a street where I'd never been before. I felt the sun hot on my back, making patterns with the shadows of beanstalks and rustly corn. I wanted to yell for somebody to come and help, but my throat was dusty and nobody was there who could help us anyway. I hugged the stupid ballerina doll i felt like throwing it away what could i do i knew i was supposed to do something when we were waiting for daddy's taxi after breakfast he'd said celia you're a big girl now he said i was responsible that i was supposed to take care of mom and Pammy when he was away i'd laugh to think about me taking care of a grown-up but daddy wasn't laughing he held my shoulders and his face was real serious I nodded and made my face serious, too. Responsible. Responsible means it's your fault if there's a mess, and I knew being in this garden was a big mess. I didn't know whose garden it was, and I thought Mom didn't either. She wouldn't even listen to me. Shushed me to be quiet, like we were playing hide-and-seek. But I knew we weren't playing a game.
4: Today, I'm talking to Frances Boyle about her new collection of short stories, Seeking Shade. You know, it, it's um, it's interesting looking at the track of your your personal life, your career. Um, you were originally a, a corporate lawyer working for an Export Development Canada, so obviously you've left the, the legal profession, but has the writing always been there?
3: Yeah, I have been writing or trying to write uh, as, since as long as I could hold a pen and probably even longer. There's um, a family story that um, my kindergarten teacher apparently told my mother you know, that um, when we painted our pictures, she would go around to the students and write the stories that they dictated to her on the back. And my story was so long and involved that she needed to paste another piece of paper onto onto.
4: The. <laughs> really.
3: So, so <laughs> yes, it was always there, and uh, you know, sort of as a very shy kid, I would um, hide away at recess as often as I could and and write my my write my stories and scribble away at them. Um, so it's been you know a, a passion that was um, when I was working uh, full time in a. Uh, corporate law firm in, in Vancouver, it was, uh, and raising a young family at the same time, it was very much um, in the background, but it was always there. It's something I wanted to do and hoped to, to do.
4: When exactly did you start really getting serious about it?
3: Well, it was the move to Ottawa that uh, that really let me um, get uh, get on with, with writing. Uh, I had... Um, um, as I said, been in a big law firm in uh, in Vancouver and uh, left that when my partner got a tenure-track job in, in Ottawa, University of Ottawa. So I was able uh, for the first year to um, find a writing group, um, joined a writing group, um, and um, that was sort of the beginning of it.
4: Two of your books are book collections of poetry. Do you have a preference or is it when you approach uh, an idea, do you know you're going to put it into verse or do you know it's going to be a short story? Or
3: I think the poetry comes somewhat more organically. Uh, most, okay. most of the, the poetry writing comes from, uh, actually comes from free writing. I very rarely sit down and say, I am going to write a poem about the time I was stood up on Christmas Eve. <laughs> <laughs> that stuck
4: with you, did it?
3: <laughs> but but I did write a poem about exactly that that was prompted yeah. by a line from another another poet that uh, that just happened to take me there um, so 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 poetry is uh, you know, sort of a, a lot of sort of tapping into some uh, some subsurface layers and and that's what tends to be how how I approach it um, uh, for For the fiction, on the other hand. Um, I will have a character often or a situation uh, that either happened to me or that I heard about or that I imagined and then I will sort of try and you know if it's something that happened to me I'll, I'll, I'll think about how a different character might might approach it or a character mm-hmm. or, or if it's fictional how I might approach it and and so it's sort of a blending of the the character and the situation and and, uh is how it comes out and i've also done some work um uh with with fairy tales and my novella tower um was never intended to be a novella it was originally linked short stories and then when i was working with isabel huggan at uh, the uh through the humber school she said it really felt more like a novella to her. I took a chance and sent out the novella because it was, it was in pretty good shape and the stories still needed some work. And uh, uh, much to my delight, Fish Got a Swim accepted it. Um, that was fabulous, but I was left with a novella- novella-sized hole in my short story collection. <laughs> So it took, uh, it took another couple of years, and you know, some of the stories that I had initially thought um, uh, were uh, a little too, a uh, little too out there, a little too weird for a you know fairly fairly uh, realism based uh, collection. I took another look at, and um, you know, thinking about how a lot of really interesting short story collections these days do have. Um, some kind of uh, speculative elements to them or, or weird to them. I, I um, uh, took another look and said, yeah, that, that, that can fit because there is some consistency in, uh, in tone or in voice or whatever with my, um, my one truly speculative story. Uh, And uh, then there's sort of little bits of elements of uh, fairy tale and, and weirdness, and some of the other stories. So, uh, so that um, uh, let me fill in fill in the gaps, and um, you know, it took another another uh, another year and a bit, I guess, to get uh, a collection that I was reasonably happy with. Uh, right. Sent into Porcupine's Quill, and then worked with wonderful editor there, uh, uh, Stephanie Small, to make the stories even better.
4: In, in general terms, um, these 14 stories, um, I mean, I, I, in my own mind, they're sort of lives. Um, I, I, I guess, you know, the, the phrase to me, quiet desperation comes to mind in some of them. Um, they're often stories of um, sadness, a little bit of sadness, although you write with humor. Um there is sort of a reflective kind of look at the lives of women, which uh, seems to run through most of them. Um,
3: Well, I mean, I think it's what, what I tend to return to. There's, uh, you know, many of my characters are in, in a place that uh, uh, they may feel a bit stuck in or, and others are at what's um, what is hopefully going to be a turning point for them. But it is the moment of, uh, you know, some some reflection, uh, and and you know certainly desperation, and if desperation can can be the means to to launch forward into something new. That's uh, something that I guess I'm 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 hoping for my character certainly, um, and uh, yeah, I mean there, there is, uh, a, I guess a a strong thread of of memory. Uh, and yeah. sort of what memories can do and how memories can be, can be altered, like in the, uh, you know, the short piece two tone that starts, uh, starts the collection of flash flash fiction story um, that really talks about sort of what memory can do to, uh, to art and, and what, you know, sort of the different, different ways uh, Art forms can can shape and fill out um, memories and and even alter them.
4: When you when you worked on these stories, I mean, they're the, because some of them are sort of written over different periods of time in different stages of, of your development as a writer. When you decided to pull together a collection, did you go back at them? Did you did you polish?
2: Oh, definitely, yeah
4: what what what's it like to go back at something you wrote say 20 years ago
3: it's uh, sometimes a little cringeworthy <laughs> ah. <laughs> yeah. but uh, yeah. if the if the bones of the story are there and uh, you know it's a question of uh, you know sort of looking for infelicitous um, languages or or you know transitions that don't work and that kind of thing then that's that's work that uh um, you know, just roll up your sleeve and, and uh, sleeves and do it.
4: Does time allow you to be a bit more dispassionate, a little bit detached from them?
3: Uh, yeah, definitely.
4: Yeah, this, the title story "Seeking Shade" itself is about a woman trying to leave a marriage. It's kind of a a sad kind of um, moment for both because it reflects the child's point of view and and the mother's point of is trying to leave. But creating that kind of a a, a a story situation, what did what did you draw upon? Why why raise that subject?
3: I I think what really drove me there was um, wanting to see um, see the see a child's perspective on on uh, a marriage that was in trouble and see what yeah. what the child saw. And right. I think in the earlier drafts. Um, you know, this this is a story that had gone through quite a few revisions. I had a draft that was entirely in, in Celia's point of view, the child. Oh. The feeling I got and the comments I got from writing group was, you know, the child just doesn't know enough of what's going on as an exercise more than as a story. I rewrote it from the mother's point of view, from Judith's point of view. Again, that lost what was my initial impetus into the story. So, So I... Uh, did a lot of playing around with um, alternating points of view um, in various various ways um, you know sort of past tense present tense uh, mm-hmm. first person third person and and uh, so i 've ended up with um, uh, the child 's voice in in first person and the mother's mother 's sections in in third person and uh, that felt like a fairly effective way to do it to keep um, keep the focus on the child's point of view, but also bring in uh, a narrator looking at it through the mother's point of
4: view. This is, of course, the, the age of Me Too and Time's Up. People expressing concern about oppression, about desire for equality, and yet in a way this story seems almost set in John Updike's New England, if you know what I mean. It's it's got a sort of timeless kind of feel, but it's an issue that's plagued people for decades and decades. Uh, Situate that for me a little bit. Is this something of today and the past?
3: You know, the stories range from, you know, sort of early 20th century to mid-century to contemporary and then into the future. I'm hoping that... um, They'll all they'll all feel relevant for now. The issues are, uh, you know, I I touch on racism in in uh, what's I guess probably my my most political story, but uh, but also sort of the uh, the workplace romance where the yes. where the. Where yes. the um, Balance is 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 skewed a bit in favor, favor of the older man and how the young protagonist sees it, uh, sort of through very much uh, uh, movie tinted, rose tinted glasses. I tried very hard to not to to make things too one sided in any of in any of the stories, but I wanted wanted those questions to kind of be there and and be be resonating a bit in terms of the the present discussions
4: when you. Came to this collection of fourteen. Was there sort of a dominating kind of idea that you that you saw them, or you know, because they do loosely group together uh, in my mind, but maybe not necessarily <laughs> in yours. So I'm curious about that. I mean, you know, you obviously there's sort of a rhythm to to this, right? This is, as there is to a rhythm to a collection of poetry. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you came to deciding in your mind what was the what was the arc of it.
3: The arc of it, I guess, was to um, kind of weave the, the stories, the settings, and the and and the the notions uh, together to you know to sort of begin with that little overture piece that uh, that set the tone to you know so talk thinking about memory, um, thinking about look, looking back and looking forward, but also thinking about, about art and you know different forms of art from dance to cinema to 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 writing and and whatnot. Those are the the stories that mostly talked about that were kind of the, the tent poles that I used to right. uh, kind of be the 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 marking points through to, to hold the whole collection up, ending with a story called Fairy Tales for Survivors that's very much about telling and and memory. Similarly, A Beach on Corfu, where it's um, sort of the the title um, is uh, a misremembered uh, fact, a historical fact. Just the notion of of, of memory and um, expression of, of me- expression of self and expression of uh, of one's life through through art and you know even though I do have several male protagonists obviously as you mentioned before the lives the lives of women and turning points in the lives of women were all um, sort of very much focuses of 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 kind of framing it and shaping it.
4: I think, actually, you handle <laughs> the men pretty well, I thought. Uh, what's it like to write a man?
3: Yeah, considering... You seem to know these guys. It,
4: I, I, you know it, what I mean? You seem you, you have a knowledge of that kind of a guy, right? Yeah. And, uh,
3: you know, sort of given the, you know, the books that I have read over the years, although I, you know, lean to women writers just uh, sort of in terms of percentages, I have read uh, any number of stories from a, a male perspective, and I have had men in my life, um, and uh, you know, so I, I've I've kind of been um, immersed in in a male perspective from from in literature. So so um, probably that, and and trying to. Um, think about how how people would feel and react in a situation
4: does it make you nervous to take on that kind of perspective or you know like do you more, take more care with it or
3: uh, yeah I mean I certainly um, would uh, not want to get things terribly wrong, but yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, but you know, but I, but i i'm pretty comfortable that uh, that, that um, my guys ended
4: up. Okay. Oh, I think so. I think I, I think so. I did want to talk about Ever Poppy, which I found a, kind of a fascinating uh, story. Uh, Generally, just on its own, um, you you mentioned early in the in our conversation about including a piece of speculative fiction, and this is. Uh, why don't we talk about that? When did, when did that idea occur to you? And um, explain the idea first of all, um, and then when it, why did it occur to you? And when did it occur to you? And
3: you know, as I mentioned before, I have a lot of scraps of things that, uh, you know, sort of, I've, I've, I've written, you know, notions of characters, and um, for the longest time, I had uh, sort of a one-pager of a woman whose job it was to be sort of an itinerant caregiver, and I didn't, she didn't feel historical to me, but I didn't really have a setting for her, so I, I knew that it was somewhere in the future and uh, so and so she takes care of the kids for a certain period of time and and needs to move on at at uh, at one juncture so that kind of just sat around as a as a one pager and as a character I'd go back to occasionally and uh, think what what story I could make of it and then um, at one point, I was in um, a writing group with uh, the Ottawa's you know, very successful science fiction writer, uh, Derek Kunskin, um, who was just beginning to write at that point. And he had a snippet of, you know, science that he said he couldn't, couldn't use in a story and freely gave it to me, which was uh, the idea of being able to Stop maturity in in animals, yeah. and, well, but to keep youth going, well, and, but uh, but maturity as well. So he said, if I could make something of that, I was welcome to. And it just kind of jived with my with my character, who's now called Mara. I put her into the situation where uh, she was um, without knowing what. Entirely what the situation was, that, that, that she was caring for uh, a child who was genetically modified
4: this way. Perman- to, be, to be permanently an infant.
3: Yeah, a is, toddler.
4: Yeah, it, which is uh, a fascinating kind of thought. Uh, like I, I'm a new grandfather, so um, my, my daughter's already worried that her son is growing up too quickly. <laughs> and he's six months old. That's an elemental feeling. Mm-hmm. That you want to keep them in that state that they're in that you that you really love and treasure and all that sort of thing. And here these people are creating something, uh, a person who actually is that. And how insidious that is, mm-hmm. um, in my mind, right? Yes. Uh, it's, and and, it's and
3: it's these people are, you know, because of their privilege, um, you know, her employers, uh, because yeah. of their privilege, they are able to... Bend the rules that even in this society would would prevent it, and and uh, and to, to their benefit.
4: You've immersed yourself into the uh, community of writers in Ottawa. Clearly, uh, t- taking classes and mingling—you uh, know, I'm assuming going to parties and launches and all that sort of stuff. There, the, there is a, a strong community here. Um, how does that help you?
3: Uh, well, being part of the community is uh, is is very good. I think it's a very supportive community, and um, it uh, yeah, it sort of generates uh, enthusiasm for each other's work and and uh, celebration of each other's work. Um, I've been in various writing groups over over the years. I, my long-standing poetry group uh, has been is. Must be nearly 20 years by now, probably more like 15. But uh, we meet every week, and most of the poetry I've written is generated in those meetings.
0: That was Arts Files Peter Robb in conversation with Frances Boyle about her collection, Seeking Shade. Our final guest today is David Bergen. David is the author of eight novels and two short story collections. He's won numerous awards, including the Giller Prize, the Carol Shields Winnipeg Book Award, And the Margaret Lawrence Award for Fiction. His latest is a collection of stories called Hear the Dark, which has been long listed for the 2020 Scotiabank Killer Prize. He spoke about the new stories with Rhonda Douglas. Here's a quick taste of the prose followed by their conversation.
5: The fire was burning in a half barrel close to the barn. She approached her uncle who stood alone and who gestured at the fire. Lily stepped forward and dropped the book into the flames. It did not burn immediately, for it was tightly bound, and even when it did begin to burn, the interior pages remained untouched. And so her uncle took up an iron rod and prodded at the book, and he opened it so that the fire might attack all of it. During that time, no words were spoken. There was just the action of her uncle spearing at the pages and turning them and offering them to the fire. Then it was finished, and only ashes were left. Her uncle turned and walked back to the house. Lily remained. She closed her eyes and when she opened them, she looked for a sign that might perhaps arrive in the physical world around her. And hear the clouds like many dark sheep gone astray. And hear the orange sun burning the world. And hear the hair that hides from the circling hawk. And hear the stretched singing of waterlogged frogs. And hear the light and hear the dark.
2: So, David, I'm going to guess that the thrill of the Giller Prize nomination does not actually wear with time. That actually, it holds up pretty well. How are you feeling about the reception to the
5: book? Well, uh, you're right; it does not wear with time. It is always, always uh, amazing and astonishing and surprising to to get a, a note from the publisher saying you've been long-listed or, or the Giller. You know, you're on the list. And so, I'm not. I'm not sure what that is. Uh, I think. I think it has to do with. Um, expectations and and you you as a writer you never set you should never set yourself up to think that wow this is this is such a good book and everybody's going to love it and it's going to get nominated and and uh, because that doesn't happen and 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 it, there's often times where it just floats under the radar and that doesn't mean it's a lesser book it just happens to be that you got the jury or didn't get the jury that, that appreciated the book so um i've been fortunate to have juries that have you know, sometimes like my book, and and uh, and I've said, yeah, it, it, let's put it here. So there's a bit of luck involved.
2: Yeah, a bit of luck, but also it's just something to enjoy when you do get that nod, right? Oh, just enjoy absolutely. the moment. So yeah. great. Yeah. So great. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, I, I'm really looking forward to talking to you a little bit about here in the dark. Um, thanks so much for your reading. Um, absolutely gorgeous. Can I ask you a little bit about the difference for you as a writer working? In the short story versus a novella is there something you really wanted to do more with a novella that you just couldn't do in the uh, Smaller space or and even you know, you're an accomplished novelist What's mm-hmm. the what's the difference for you? And how do you know you're working on one?
5: <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know I, I didn't know I was working on a novella until I had finished a novel Of which the the here the dark the novella is was a part of and and i i sent it off to an editor i trust not not the one i work with but an editor i trust and she wrote back to say that the novel didn't work and and i should know as soon as i send off uh, a piece of work to ask someone is this working it's not working you wouldn't be asking if you didn't think but you sometimes you need that nudge from the outside to say you know this is not working so that and that novella was essentially a three hundred page novel that i I took lopped off the last two hundred pages and and it became the novella that uh, or, or so about hundred pages it became the novella and it was much more contained I think what was happening was I was writing a novel that was very self referential was was I had almost gone postmodern on me and and I got rid of all of that and just told a very what is essentially a very simple story um, and very straightforward in in plainer prose without all the um, Auto fiction and stuff going on in there because I I I was trying something that Unfortunately, I'm not capable of doing and, and it's something that I admire in other writers Is is the ability to to move into auto fiction? Seamlessly and then back to to a story that 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 holds and and so I couldn't do it um, so the stories the stories are very different than uh, the novella the novella of course gives you more room to breathe uh, There's more space to to move the characters around in and develop um, Just as there's, there's even more room in a novel to, to to expand and sometimes in a novel There's too much room where you start, start to get wordy and you explain yourself and, and you forget that you're, you're simply exploring a character yeah.
2: Well, I've read your novels, so there's no danger there. Um, but I absolutely, uh, you know, I really didn't want to get, li- let Lily go at the end of that novella. And um, although it was, you know, satisfying in and of itself, I definitely could have read, could have read a novel. So I don't know how much we have to <laughs> have to pay to get the other pages. But, uh, I, yeah. So I would love to hear your thoughts or philosophy about endings particularly in in short stories But you know i'm thinking here of the stories never too late and saved and even here the dark I think it's never too late where even you know, the last uh, Line is she was waiting for him on the porch. Yes And even the she is a little bit open or Mm -hmm. has a kind of double meaning to it um, in a lovely way and so i'm just yeah, I just I'd love to hear your thoughts on endings and whether you're actively giving the ending over to the reader, or do you you know do you come to it with a specific intent?
5: What do you, What do you mean by actively giving it over to the reader? Do you mean I I'm I'm uh, allowing the reader to make his or yeah. her own interpretation? A, yeah,
2: yeah. Is it a, a like? Do you have a definite ending in your mind, um, uh, or are you just you know, if, if I said, how, if I said who I, you know, how I thought the ending went and it wasn't quite what you intended, are you still okay with that?
5: Yeah, yeah, especially the novella. I, um, it's, it's amazing to hear um, the absolutely opposite of what I thought was happening at the end of the novella. The reader comes back and says, this is what happened. And, and I'm thinking, really? <laughs> is that, and, and I think that's great. I think that's great because i I'm certainly not going to be prescriptive and and say this is what happens to the reader at, or to the character at the end, and this is this is her salvation, and this is where she you know veers off down this path. I think I think, like in film, uh, which is a you know something we, we read as well, you want you want to walk out of the theater or now these days turn off the computer, and you want to imagine the life of the character beyond. Beyond that that story framework that you that you've just watched and I think the same is with a novel. You don't you don't want to Collapse everything into one into one sort of piece and say this is it and you know, I think I think to have it open uh, I mean I think it reflects our lives much more than than uh, Neatly tying everything together. So I I I, Even though I disagree with readers who have a certain way of looking at an ending I'm I'm not uh, I'd be loath to correct them. Yeah. yeah. Right, yeah, yeah. love that. okay. Yeah. Um, you actually wrote in a, I was reading an essay
2: you'd written about reading in the pandemic, and you talked about life beyond the frame. I thought that was a very nice way of sort of, you know, putting yeah. it.
5: Like life yeah, the frame. Well, yeah, well it is, and in, in that sense of, you know, what's the future, you know, and we're just on hold. Yeah. Right,
2: exactly, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. So, um, of course I have to ask you about faith because there's uh, so much in these stories that is around faith Questioning faith the you know, the consequences of either holding to faith or not holding to faith or um, you know, and just um I'd just be interested in hearing You know what it is about faith that interested you and for these stories in particular
5: uh, these stories were written over a fair fair number of years, um the, the first story in this collection that was actually written and published was was the uh, uh, "How Can N Men Share a Bottle of Vodka," which was written way back in nineteen ninety nine, and and um, a bit of a romp that one, and uh, very little to do with faith except for faith in oneself and learning how to trust oneself, and, and especially the main character, and and when a lot of a lot of people have said these, book, these stories deal with, with faith and so forth, and, and I know what, what they mean because, because there are religious undertones, there are people struggling, and God is mentioned and so forth. But if you were to ask me what, what faith means, and, and, and uh, I grew up with a father as a pastor in a very religious church background, um, I'm not even sure what, what, it's a term that we use very loosely and we assume that everybody knows what it means, but I'm, I'm not sure. Perhaps the closest I can come to a, a definition of faith is, is uh, you have good faith or you have bad faith. And I think good faith is, is um, really uh, a sense of oneself, that you, that you know how you're moving through the world, and, and you're, but you're not absolutely sure how you're moving through the world. There's always a question. And um, there's a faith in oneself that you can question, that you can have doubt, that you can, and that hasn't, that isn't about God, it's it's about, um, it's about our relationship with each other, it's about the human condition. So that, I think that is perhaps what, what these stories are exploring, but, but they also are using sometimes religious language to explore that. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Thank you for that distinction. I think that's, that's great. Does that, is
5: that, does that make sense, Rhonda? Is that, it does, um,
2: absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
5: yeah. Yeah. Cause I, yeah, yeah because that's,
2: I, in fact, it, it, it reminds me, so I, I spoke with Sivankam Tamavangsa earlier and, you know, people keep saying to her, you know, your collection is about the experiences of refugees. Right. And she was like, mm, like, no, yeah. <laughs> that's there. That's a, you know, yeah. it's a, it's, it's within that space, but the stories are not about that. And yeah. so I think, uh, I think there's an echo there, which is yeah. really interesting. Um, so <laughs> I had a, um, you know, it's always hard to, to, um, figure out the questions to ask, uh, about a book like this that doesn't, um, you know, I don't want to give away right uh, a little too much, but at the same time, um, you know, it's such a, this was such a great, uh, great read experience. I really love the book, David. Thank and you. one of the things I enjoyed was that, you know, your titles. Um, yeah. So I'm thinking of April in Snow Lake and Leo Fell, you know, they, they uh, would lead you to believe you're about to read one kind of story. And then you're in the middle, you're like, Oh, that's not the story I thought yeah. I was about to be reading. So can you say a little bit about how you think about the balance between expected and unexpected? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, for you know, as you were writing for a Reader,
5: well, I think I think a title, and I appreciate your reference to titles because I think a title is uh, the doorway into the story, and um, never too late. One of the one of the titles of a story in in the collection, um, originally when I wrote it, and I was going to publish it in Walrus Magazine. I, oh, I forget the editor's name right now, but he he said no, 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 no. I had called it the Dog. Okay, the, t- the title was the dog and he said no, it's it's uh, that's too that's too simplistic It's too he had a word for it, but he he didn't like the dog So he suggested never too late, which I think worked better, but for the most part I'm I'm pretty sure about my titles before I before I attach them to the story because I believe that It's just part of the text it, It's not it's not It's not a title but it, it moves it moves the reader, it should move the reader right from the title into the story. And um, so it's very crucial, especially for short stories. Um, I mean, titles are hard to find and they're hard, they're hard to figure out. And, and when you do find them, I, I think that they really work well. The, the math teacher story in the, in the collection, How Can N Men Share a Bottle of Vodka, came from when I was teaching high school and there was a math teacher next door who, who was completely irreverent and um, he would always he'd show me little philosophical tidbits that had to do with math. And one of the essays that he showed me was titled, How Can End Men Share Something? But I changed it to vodka. And as soon as I, I, I read that essay and I saw the title, I thought, oh, that's a perfect title for a story. Sometimes the title comes before, sometimes it comes after. And usually the title should not explain too much. And like you say, it it um, it it should maybe be a little bit surprising once you get into the middle of the story to think, well, hold on, what is this title? Why why is it called this? You know, uh, there's a Raymond Carver story called "So Much Water, So Close to Home," which yeah. I think is a great title and it's a great story and it's a sad story. And um, but it it uh, it's all about water, but right. it, it's also about faith and faithfulness. And and uh, I think. I think uh, what that title does, if you read the story, it, it, you have to sort of figure out what, what does that mean? So much water, so close to home, you know? Are we drowning, you know? And uh, so I think, I think stories, uh, titles can be lovely and they can be a lot of fun. Yeah.
2: Um, They're there in some ways like little fragments of, of poetry, I think. Yeah, Uh, yeah. And actually, I wanted to ask you if it was intentional that you have poetry in every single story plus the novella. Do I? You do. That surprises me. References poetry. Someone calls someone a poetry. Someone reads poetry. Quotes poetry. Yeah. Every single one. I was like, "Oh, he's doing a thing." So you a noticed. Oh my goodness, it. It
5: that's great, Rhonda, that you noticed that. That's a, see. That's the kind of thing that I I did not pick up on. I knew there was head trauma in a few stories, but I didn't know that there were. You know right. that I had put poetry in. I mean, I I love reading poetry. I would I would never ever say I could write poetry, and I haven't because I I, I just don't know how. And I, I um, and I and and like the, one of the characters says, in one of the stories. I I, I pre- pre- prefer the narrative crescendo of of uh, prose, right. you know, the prosaic, you right. know. And um, but I that's interesting. Under that, uh, I'm gonna have to go back and look. <laughs> and see what what, what poetry are or...
2: definitely there, definitely there. Um. So I wanted to ask about I, I um there were a couple of stories that I love. I'm gonna um. I wanted to mention experience I was having as well in relation to this. So, so bear with me while I try to articulate. So, you know, so many of the stories um, uh, in fact, most of the short stories were um, stories of boys and men on a kind of, you know, at a critical moment. And for me as a woman, that's a cross-cultural experience. And then you had two other stories, one with a boy in Da Nang, um, and a man in Tegucigalpa or near Mm Tegucigalpa, And uh, those of course are cross-cultural experiences for for you. They also had sort of a dangerous Americans kind of thing going on there. Um, And beautiful stories. And yet that cross-cultural thing is so hard to do well. Can you say a little bit about what you think it takes to do that kind of deep imaginative work really well?
5: Ooh. Well, I mean, the, the question right off is, um, is it really well? Did I succeed? And um, I know that that it, it, it's the danger, of course, is always that you are you are moving into someone else's territory, and 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 appropriation is always a concern. Um, do you know the space in which you're writing? Do, do is it is it yours to write about? Um, the boy, the boy in Denang, who's very young and and, and falls for a, a missionary American missionary woman, young woman. Um, there, there, it is from the point of view of the boy. But I think I think in both those stories, where there's a cross cultural character, for me, and perhaps this is this is a false trick, but the, but for me, I tend to slide into or or use an objective voice. In other words, don't large storytelling. Yeah, still, still personal, still very close to the um, to the the bone of the character, but but not too much detail on emotion, not too much detail on on uh, how he's thinking, um, what he's thinking. There, there's just it's more uh, a description of the action, the movement, um, the reaction, and a description of the physical. Structure of, of, of the character and and the story and so uh, It's a you could call it a bit of a cheat But but I think it's maybe a safer way to tell a story where you are a, a, a Camera on the wall and you're and you're describing the character moving Sailing fishing cleaning his knife uh, so so that you uh, I mean, I don't I don't know someone like Quinn the, the Honduran guy from Roatan. I met a man like that, and that, that's who I based the story on, but but I don't know him. And so if I'm going to tell, my, tell a story with him in it, I'm going to stand back from it a bit.
2: Right. Does that make yeah. sense?
5: It yeah. sure
2: does. Yeah, I can really, when you say that, I can absolutely see it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's great. Thanks. Um, so I wanted to ask you, now we're into... Um, I wanted to ask you about sex scenes. So speaking mm-hmm. of things that are challenging to write, right? right? They're hard to write. And sometimes, quite honestly, they're really hard to read, right? If you if you get it wrong, it's, uh, or 80, it's hard or
5: 80, to read. Were any of mine hard to read, Rhonda? Did no, you they weren't
2: hard to read.
5: No, I, okay. I,
2: I thought they like they felt really acutely accurate in their like awkwardness and glory, right. you know, like right. just...
5: Yeah, um,
2: and so what do you think goes into like, how do you write a great sex scene? Because readers love them when you get them <laughs> right, right?
5: I don't know. I think, um, um, don't use humor. Yeah, uh, like, like uh, in Leo Fell that the Leo is and has, about to have sex and and the woman he's about to have sex with says, can we pray, right? Yeah, and, and cool. so And so, And She talks she she's so thankful and she thanks God for the the joy of horniness and and so you have I think there has to be humor uh, Not overwrought don't go overwrought on description don't go all up dyke (laughs) in and 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 uh, I think uh, Keep it short Although longer is probably better. Keep it short
2: Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, said. well said. So um, I just wanted to ask you about, this is, this is not in relation to the book, but I wanted to ask you about the, the essay you wrote. I think it was for the Windsor Star, the pandemic reading.
5: Uh, Toronto, um, Star. Toronto Star, yeah. Toronto
2: Star, okay. Yeah. Um, so, and you said, as we read the narrative of our own plague in real time, we keep looking for what is to come. We want hope, we need it. And I'm wondering, do you think of your own writing or is writing generally as, as an act of hope?
5: Oh yeah, absolutely. It's, of course, it's an act of hope, and I think it's a. It is certainly a reading. Reading is an act of hope, and um, even reading terrible, terribly bleak stories. The, the, the amazing thing about for me is when I when I read sad, bleak stories, and then they're done well. They make me so happy. And 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 the, the joy and the happiness, the pleasure comes from. The story itself not from what's happening to the people I might I might feel experience terrible sadness for the character but within that sadness above that rising above that is just a pure pleasure and happiness of, of, of Experiencing a, a purely driven story that works really well. And so I I think there's tremendous hope in, in storytelling, I mean that's what I think I really do believe that we we even with technology changing how we tell stories, I think that storytelling, will still be our way of survival.
2: Yeah. It's in our DNA, isn't it?
5: Yeah. Well, thank you, David. Great to talk to you, Rhonda. And thanks for being such a great critical reader.
0: Thank you all for listening today. That was Rhonda Douglas in conversation with David Bergen. Thanks again to Suvankun, Peter, Francis, Rhonda, and David for participating in Writers Festival Radio. Please take a moment to rate and review the podcast and don't hesitate to recommend it to a friend. I hope you'll also find time to head to Perfect Books on Elgin Street or any independent bookseller to pick up copies of all three featured books. Special thanks to the Ottawa Public Library and Library and Archives Canada for their collaboration in our virtual season and to our festival members and donors for making this possible. Without your charitable support, we cannot do what we do. So thank you very much. For donations large and small. Our entire virtual season is available online at writersfestival.org and all you need to do to connect with some of the world's most acclaimed authors is head over there and click play. This podcast is produced by Aaron Flynn, original music and sound engineering by Mike Dubey. Kira Harris is our program director and I'm your host Sean Wilson.